Well, good morning. It's been an awesome time of worship already. Can we have another round of applause for everyone that went public uh, with their faith today? Awesome. Well, for the first 20 years of my life, there was no one I butted heads with more than my older brother, Keith. Uh, Keith was 18 months older than me, and in many ways, he was that typical older brother that could just get on your nerves. Any younger siblings here with us today, we all know what I'm talking about, absolutely. You know, you'd have a friend come over and spend the night, and after a few hours, they'd kind of lose interest in you, right? And then they'd gradually kind of spend more and more time with your big brother or big sister because they were older and cooler, and it would just drive me nuts. I remember when I would move up to middle school from elementary school or move up to high school from middle school, my name and identity would be instantly changed. I would go from being Matt Saxon to Keith's little brother. And boy, I absolutely hated living in my big brother's shadow. I really resented it. But I really don't think those dynamics alone account for why our bedroom was so often turned into a battlefield. Oh, I'm not saying that I was perfect. I could certainly stir the pot at times, but I'm gonna be honest with you this morning. The lion's share of the fighting between me and my brother, it was started by Keith. (laughs) You see, Keith just loved to pick on me. He did it all the time, and at times he could be quite merciless. But the thing is, Keith was not only regularly insulting me, he didn't just diss me all the time. There was sort of this double whammy effect because not only would Keith insult me, but Keith was also really, really funny. And there's hardly anything worse than someone insulting you and having a great punchline thrown in there as well. And I swear, my brother Keith would save his best material and wait for my friends to come over. And then Keith would just love to roast me in front of my friends, and it was, of course, funny. And so my friend would start laughing at the joke, and the next thing you know, I'm seeing red, and Keith and I are rolling around on the floor throwing punches. Well, that really describes the dynamic between my brother and I. We would fight quite regularly, and in fact, I remember one Christmas morning where I was about 10 years old, and my older sister, Robin, Keith, and I were all opening our presents. Now, I don't know how your family does things on Christmas morning. You know, some families really like to savor that special time together. They really like to open each gift one at a time and focus in on whoever's opening the present and really just sort of soak in the moment and see the expressions and just really make this long, sweet, Norman Rockwell kind of experience of opening Christmas presents. Well, that wasn't my family at all, okay? My family, we would all tear into the presents at the exact same time. In fact, as soon as my mother gave us the green light, all three of us would rush downstairs and we'd begin feverishly tearing into all these presents. And like most children, we knew that there were two kinds of presents. There were the exciting gifts like toys and games. And then there were the boring gifts, like clothes, that were nothing more than an obstacle getting in the way of those more exciting presents. Well, this one particular year, there I was, 
tearing into my presence. My brother and sister were doing the same, wrapping papers flying everywhere. And I opened this small box that had a watch in it. When I realized it was only a watch and not a game or a toy, I kind of thought, oh, a nice watch, tossed it aside, and quickly went on to opening other more exciting presents. Well, fast forward about six months later, I was hanging out at my house, and I noticed Keith was wearing this really nice-looking watch on his wrist. I said, Keith, I, I really like that watch. That's a really cool watch. And then Keith burst out into laughter and said, <laughs> yeah, I stole this from you last Christmas, and you never even noticed. Well, that was Keith. Our relationship was pretty dysfunctional. Our relationship was full of drama and friction. It was full of stress and strife. In a word, it was miserable. Maybe you're dealing with some of those exact same dynamics in your relationships in your life as well. Maybe at work or in your neighborhood, perhaps uh, with your family or with your spouse, you're just finding yourself regularly embroiled in arguments and yelling and bickering. You know, maybe your life feels like one never-ending reality TV show where you're just surrounded by drama queens who are only out for themselves. Well, this morning, God's Word has some very, very practical, albeit counterintuitive, counsel on how we can pursue harmony in our relationships. This morning, we're going to see how humility can help us navigate the volatility and complexity of group dynamics and relationships and help us cut out as much unnecessary drama as we possibly can out of our lives. So if you have your Bible this morning, I wanna invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter two, and we're gonna begin in verses one and two. There we're going to see the role that humility plays in helping us keep the peace with others. Philippians chapter two, verse one. If there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. First this morning, I want you to see that Paul's aim is unity. Notice what it says in verse two. Paul says, I want you, the church at Philippi, to have the same mind. I want you to have the same love. I want you to be of one mindset. If you go back just a few verses in chapter one to verse 27, he says much the same thing there as well. He exhorts them. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear Hear what? That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, with Paul's emphasis on unity and being of one mind and in one accord, that might lead you to conclude that perhaps the church at Philippi 
was highly dysfunctional. You might think, oh, it must have been full of immature, selfish, bickering Christians, but the reality is quite the opposite is true. Best we can tell, the church at Philippi is a pretty healthy church. It's a church that's functioning well. It is a good team, but Paul wants to see them go from being a good team to a great team, and Paul, as a considerate, attentive leader, has noticed that cropping up in this congregation is a little bit of infighting and bickering. In fact, in chapter four, the apostle Paul has to call out two people by name because their arguing and bickering is threatening the unity of the church. Philippians chapter four, verse two, he says this, I appeal to you, Iodia and Synthike, Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. See, the church at Philippi was a healthy church, but they were being threatened by the early stages of infighting, selfishness, and bickering. And Paul, like any good leader, knows how destructive a group can become when that bickering and infighting starts to crop up. And so he tells the church in Philippi much the same thing. He tells the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter four, verse three, this is basically what Paul is saying. He says, make every effort to do what? To keep the unity of the spirit. You've got the unity of the spirit. You're pretty unified. You're of one mind. Make every effort to preserve it, to keep it, through the bond of peace. What is Paul addressing in the church at Philippi? He's addressing this issue of being of one mind, one heart, of one accord. He wants them to be unified. Let's continue in verse three of chapter two. There we read, Paul saying, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. And here I want you to notice that selfishness divides teams. It doesn't matter if it's in your marriage, if it's in your family, if it's in your workplace, or if it's in your neighborhood. Whenever selfish ambition and conceit begin to show themselves, it is only a matter of time before that relationship, that team, that group ends up having everything turned upside down. Healthy relationships become unhealthy, and before too long, those relationships and those groups will go from being harmonious to being full of disorder and dysfunction and disaster is going to be quick to follow. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus says this so beautifully. This is frequently attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but this idea really comes from Christ himself. He says this, every kingdom, not some kingdoms, not most kingdoms, 
every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city, every household divided against itself will not stand. In other words, when infighting starts to push out unity, it's only a matter of time if you let that go unchecked before disaster comes in and everything is turned upside down. Dostoevsky said the following about selfishness. He says, the world says you have needs, satisfy them. You have as much right as the rich and the mighty. Don't hesitate to satisfy your needs. Indeed, expand your needs and demand more. This is the worldly doctrine of today. And listen to what it leads to, according to Dostoevsky. He says, they believe, okay, they believe that this selfishness will result in freedom, but the result for the rich is isolation and suicide. For the poor, it is envy and murder. James in chapter three, verse 16 says the following, wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. You see, we think that our selfishness is going to get us where we want to go, but the reality is selfish ambition and conceit turn our lives upside down, okay? They strip our relationships of harmony and peace and health, and they place a target on our backs. Question for you this morning. Do you want more drama in your life? Do you want more strife? Do you want more yelling and screaming? Do you want to feel tense around the people in your life? Well, hey, if you want more of that, simply act on your selfish ambition, act on your conceit, because destruction, chaos, and bickering and fighting are sure to follow. You see, selfishness and drama go hand in hand. They're like two peas in a pod, okay? Selfishness, selfishness and dysfunction and destruction, they go together, okay? They're one and the same. They're part and parcel of one another. They go together like iPhones and annoying software updates, okay? They go together like the lottery and disappointment. They go together like Chipotle and an upset stomach. <laughs> Whenever we act out of our selfishness, chaos turmoil, and destruction are not far behind. You see, the same way you can't take hot coals onto your chest and not burn your clothes, the same way you can't walk across hot coals and not burn your feet, in the same way you cannot, cannot introduce selfish ambition into a relationship or a group and not end up with dysfunction Drama and division. Continuing in Philippians 2, verse 4, we read the following. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to read that again. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
And here I want you to see that although selfishness divides teams, humility multiplies good will. Selfishness divides teams, humility multiplies good will. But before I can really unpack that, let's first talk a little bit about what it means to actually be humble. Because it's been my observation that the word humility is a word that when we think about what it means to be humble, oftentimes our ideas about what that means can be pretty unhelpful, off base, and a little bit wonky. For example, some people seem to think being humble means to think of yourself as a worm. Humility means to just inwardly tell yourself this message that I'm awful, I'm terrible, I'm a worm, or to sometimes verbalize that and go around telling other people how awful and despicable you are. Hey, that's not humility. Others seem to think humility is basically lying about things that you are good at. Someone pays you a compliment. Someone says, hey, I really love that meal you prepared. And you say, oh, it wasn't very good. It was bad. It wasn't that good. No, humility is not lying and saying we're bad at something we're actually good at. In fact, humility is really not something that's inwardly aimed and focused at all. Rather, humility is outwardly focused, not on our welfare and ourselves, but on the welfare of others. As I was spending time preparing for this message, I really wanted to come up with my own definition for what humility appears to mean in these verses. And You might like this definition, you might not. That's cool, but I'll just share it with you in case there's anything helpful in it. Here is my definition of humility. Humility is an alertness to the needs of others coupled with a willingness to seek the good of the group. I'm gonna share that again. Humility is an alertness to the needs of others coupled with a willingness to seek the good of the group. C.S. Lewis Define humility this way. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, he said, it is thinking about yourself less. At the heart of humility is not hatred for oneself, but rather a recognition that other people matter, and I am not the center of the universe. And what's really amazing about the power of humility and why I say it can multiply goodwill is simply because of this. When you're in a group, whether it's your marriage, your family, at work, in your neighborhood, whatever it might be, when you're in a group, when just one person starts practicing humility, when just one person adopts this mindset of humility, when they start to cultivate an awareness of the needs of others and a willingness to seek the good of the group, it can be absolutely transformative. It can take some of the most unhealthy and dysfunctional businesses and families and transform them into the most harmonious, successful businesses and families. When just one person practices humility, It can have this domino effect that completely transforms a team. You know, it doesn't really matter if we're talking about soccer 
if we're talking about basketball or if we're talking about 2K. One thing I have noticed, passing is contagious. Passing is contagious. Oh, the opposite of that is also true, but passing is contagious. Let me tell you what I mean. If you're playing on a basketball team and just one person begins to be a ball hog, they don't pass hardly ever, they force shots they really shouldn't be trying to take, they ignore open teammates. When they start hogging the ball and not spreading the ball around, it has this domino effect because the other four players on the court think to themselves, I'm barely going to touch this ball this game the way he's playing or the way she's playing. So whenever I get my hands on it, I'm not passing to anybody. I'm chucking that thing up. The reverse of that is just as true. Passing is contagious. When you have a pass-first point guard, someone that's looking for their teammates, their first instinct is to pass, and they start spreading the ball around, all the other players relax a little bit and go, oh, when I get the ball, I can pass because we're spreading it around. We're sharing the ball. I'm going to get plenty of looks. Passing is contagious. And that's why even in a group where you have just one person begin to practice this selflessness, it can totally transform a group. You see, humility, I like to think of it as some kind of social jujitsu. You can be in a very dysfunctional team where people are all out for themselves, and if just one person starts thinking of others and not just thinking about their own interest, it is amazing how that can spread and totally change a group. You see, when your team is looking out for one another, it takes all the pressure off of you to have to keep looking out for yourself. Let me try to explain what I mean. I and my, my wife, Nikki, and I, we have three daughters, so there's five people in our family. And let's say that we're making a decision about something like where we're gonna spend our family vacation or what we wanna do with a particular day off, and the five of us start talking about that. You know, if I start only thinking about what I want, if I start only thinking about myself, if I start throwing my weight around, well, you know what's going to happen, right? It's very likely that the other four are going to go, hey, dad's just out for himself, so I'm just going to be out here advocating for myself. But on the flip side, instead of that one versus four approach, which is not a good recipe for harmony in the home, if I start looking out for the other four women in my family and my wife Nikki starts looking out for our three daughters and myself and we all start looking out for each other, well, hey, instead of one versus four, I've now got four people looking out for me and I don't need to look out for myself anymore because they've got my back. They are looking to not only satisfy their desires and look out for their own interests, they're looking out for my interest as well. It reminds me of Romans 12:10. When a team really does this well, it looks like this beautiful verse. Romans 12, verse 10. There we read, love one another with brotherly affection. How do you do that? Outdo one another in showing honor. Man, I love that. Outdo one another in showing honor. Get competitive with trying to put the interest of others in your life ahead of you because that can get really contagious really quick 
And before too long, you've not only got a lot more health and harmony, it tends to lead to a lot more winning. When you're on a team like this that looks to outdo one another in doing good, you don't need to be preoccupied, preoccupied with your own desires. They're already covering that. It frees you up to focus on your mission and on the other people in your team. Humility multiplies goodwill. Well, in the last few minutes as we close this morning, I simply wanna offer five different practical ways we can seek to be more humble in our teams, in our relationships, in our group settings. And hopefully there'll be something here that's helpful for you, or if nothing else, it will be a nice, encouraging reminder. First of all, when it comes to this idea of being humble, we need to start with simply this, be honest, be honest. Ephesians chapter four, verse 25 says this, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are all members one of another. You see, we just read in verse four that we are to be concerned with the interests of others. But the reality is, if I never verbalize what my interests are, if I never explain what I would like to see happen or what my concerns are, then there's no way the people in my family or the people at work or the people in your neighborhood are going to be able to seek the common good of the team. We have to be willing to speak up and politely but assertively and honestly explain, here's what I would love to see happen or here is what I would like to accomplish. You know, I come from the South and down South, everyone's kind of fake nice, right? I saw this funny map not too long ago that talked about the different regions of the country and it said in the Southeast, people act nice but are mean and in the Northeast, people act mean but are nice. <laughs> and I think there's some truth in that. You know, down south, people always say, I'm fine with whatever, whatever you want to do. Hey, I'm flexible. Listen, the reality is no one is nice enough to put themselves last forever. They're going to end up blowing up at small things. They're going to end up with a lot of resentment. And therefore, it's really important that we're honest and saying, here is what I would like to see happen. Because otherwise, you expect other people on your team to be mind readers. And that is a recipe for dysfunction and disappointment. Number two, seek the input of others. Seek input from others. Whatever teams, whatever groups you're a part of, ask your teammates what they think, what they think we ought to do, what they think the problems are, what they think we should spend money on or spend our time doing. I realize some of the time it's not always practical to ask that question, but we can at least consider it and go, if I do A, how might it impact this person in my life? You see, if we want other people to be honest and clear, then we need to set the conditions for that to happen. And one of the best ways we can do that is simply by asking questions of one another and seeking input from others. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, again, Look, each of you, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You're not gonna be very effective 
at baking into the cake the interests of others if you don't spend some time seeking input from those on your team. Third, work hard to try to identify win-win scenarios. Work hard to try to find those win-win scenarios. You know, the reality is not every decision in an organization or in your family or in your marriage, not all of them are a zero-sum game where if there's a winner, there's automatically a loser. No, a lot of the decisions we make in life, there are win-win solutions out there. But here's the thing about those win-win solutions I've noticed. They take an investment of time and energy. Sometimes they require meetings. It takes time to brainstorm. And instead of just going, well, if we do this, that scratches the itch that I'm concerned about. It takes a little more time to say, okay, but is there some other way we can make a decision, take an approach, decide to do something that might merge the uh, desires and interests of everyone on our team? Romans 14, 19 tells us we are to pursue what makes for peace and catch this mutual upbuilding. What's for the good of the group? Spend the time needed to identify win-win scenarios. Our next point is when you can't have a win-win scenario, simply pick your battles. Pick your battles. When you're making decisions as a team, when you're making decisions as a husband and wife, and it is sort of that zero-sum game, Ask yourself, does this really matter all that much to me, or do I just like winning? Do I just like getting my way? If it doesn't matter that much to you, we'll see what to do in the next point. But if it does matter, continue to have that conversation. I think this is all important in understanding this passage here. The idea of humility, according to these verses, is not one where you have no will, no desire, no interest, and you're just this ghost that doesn't matter on a team. That is not the idea here. It says in verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Grace Fellowship, it's okay to have interests of your own. And there are gonna be times where you're kind of in disagreement with people on your team and you're not quite sure what to do. If you're a very accommodating person, your temptation is gonna to be to just kind of concede and go into your shell. But there is a time and place to politely and respectfully and tactfully advocate for yourself because again, at the end of the day, this is about unity and the good of the team and you are a part of the teams in your life. Fourth and finally, when we have those zero-sum kind of decisions to make in our lives, if it does matter to you, boy, I hope there's times in your life where you learn to surrender your agenda, you learn to step aside and catch this now, and you do that with a smile. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, Speaking of love, it says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude. And what does it say there? It does not insist on its own way. Listen, whatever your sphere of influence might be, 
whatever leadership roles you might be privileged to have in your life, I hope you're learning how to step aside, let go of your agenda at times, and to do that with a smile. Because sometimes that's what it takes to maintain the bond of peace and the harmony of your relationships and the teams in your life. In many ways, one of the most important words in that statement is the word and. I hope you're learning how to set your agenda aside and to do it with a smile. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says this, God loves a reluctant, miserable giver. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. God loves someone who gives and puts a guilt trip on others. No, it says God loves a cheerful giver. Let me tell you something. If you're gonna surrender your agenda, if you're gonna go through that sacrifice of giving up your interests in a decision and what you want, it is foolish to go through the pain of that self-sacrifice and to not let it have the benefit for others of not being served with a big guilt trip. It's silly. You're going through all the pain of the self-denial. You might as well let it accomplish what it's set out to do, which is to bless others and keep the harmony in our teams, our relationships, and in our groups. I hope you're learning by the grace of God at times to step aside and surrender your agenda and to do so with a smile. Well, when you think about the teams in your life, whether it's your marriage or your family, maybe it's at work or in your neighborhood, whatever they might be, I simply wanna ask you, how healthy and harmonious are those teams? If they are healthy, We've seen in God's word today that the way to maintain that unity is through humility. The healthiest teams, the healthiest businesses, the healthiest marriages can be upended overnight sometimes by infighting and bickering. We should be on guard against selfish ambition and conceit. If you wanna maintain the health of the groups in your life, pursue humility, and if you're in teams, relationships, and groups that are unhealthy, remember this, it only takes one person practicing humility to have that domino effect that can totally revolutionize a team. Why not be the person that it starts with? You know, I told you a little bit earlier that for the first 20 years of my life, there was no one I got in more arguments, fights, and disagreements with than my brother. But for the last 20 years of my life, outside of my wife and children, I probably have not been closer or in a more meaningful relationship than the relationship that I now enjoy with my brother, Keith. You say, how did that happen? Pretty easy. Somewhere along the way, we decided to practice humility. 
to not only be concerned with our own interests, but the interests of others. We extended that olive branch and a very dysfunctional relationship by God's grace has much to my surprise been transformed into one of the most meaningful relationships in my life. And hey, as for that watch that he stole, it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because for about the last 10 years of my life, my brother has sought to atone for that sin by buying me one nice watch after another, <laughs> including the one that I'm wearing uh, right now. If we wanna have harmony in our relationships, if we wanna win in our teams, humility is a non-negotiable. When we choose humility, we choose flourishing and harmony. May that be true of us as a church, in our families, and in our communities here in the Capital Region. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the practical counsel that you give us. We thank you for the ability to see the wisdom contained in your word. Lord, we find it beautiful when someone that is gifted practices humility. We love to see teamwork pay off. And God, you call us as your people to practice this humility, to not have our lives dominated by selfish ambition and conceit, but rather, Lord, to have our lives filled with humble love, living lives that don't just seek our own interests, but are concerned with the interests of others. God, I pray that you would teach each and every one of us to grow in humility, to be more humble men and women and children in whatever areas of our life you might want to speak. And for those that are here today, Lord, that don't know you, I pray that you would give them the most transformative humility and the most life-giving humility that we can ever experience, and that is the realization and the conviction of our sin, the realization that we have fallen short of your glory, that we need your grace, and that you sent Christ to take our place on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. God, we pray that you would please generate curiosity in the minds of those listening that don't know you, and that you would generate motivation in the hearts of us that do know you so that we can grow in humility and better reflect you and your character in the world. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.